Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Whiskey does not steady the hand. It just dulls the worry over the hand's unsteadiness. Jesus Christ. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, do I brag too much about my book or my interviews or my, I don't even know what this is, cross-cultural study success? I've never even done a cross-cultural study. Uh, Do I brag about those things too much? I think this is one of those cases where, you know, do fish notice water? Uh, I'm so I'm so used to you being in the company of human Wittgenstein that uh, I I don't even notice the smaller brags. <laughs> I'm, I'm David Pizar from Cornell University. Uh, now I think that really it's just a contrast that I'm so humble that you can't help but seem like a braggadocious, like bombastic, pompous bastard. It's well, part of my culture. The braggadocio, I thought, was part of your culture, not the humbleness. <laughs> it's just the deep insecurity. I'm actually referring to one of the rules that was offered by Jacob Malley for our new drinking game. We have a drinking game contest. Come up with the best drinking game idea. Receive a free T-shirt. A T-shirt that's, by the way, practically in the works now, right? Yeah, we have a new logo in the works. Yeah, should be coming, finally. Uh, two years. We're going to have a T-shirt and then officially be out of topics. Right. Uh, we've been out yeah. of topics for a while. We'll get back to the drinking game in one second, but today's episode, we always forget to do this, is going to be about Susan Wolf's book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, and about what constitutes meaning in life um, and what it requires. Yeah, and it was actually one of your book picks from last episode. It was. Um, That's right. If you did, if you missed our last episode, we gave our four picks from four different genres of thing. I'm surprised you didn't pick like one book you've written, one movie you've made. <laughs> um, one, I, one, I just don't think I one dump that, that you took. <laughs> oh man, no, I. <laughs> I would. Uh, that's the one thing I do brag about. Like I'll brag about to my family. Like I'll ask them to come in and look at it. I'll, no, no, no. I, I know. Normally, you wouldn't want to see like someone's shit, but this uh, is like a thing of beauty. This is a thing of pure beauty. <laughs> that was another person's drinking game. That any time, any time we devolve into poopy, poopy jokes, like a fifteen-year-old. So, so what this but, turned into is a way for people to make fun of us, essentially. Which is fine. Which, which is, is fine, fine especially. Yeah. If if they point out true things. Yeah. Um, like my favorite of all 
of uh, the suggested drinking games games came actually from Immanuel Kant. So it turns out Immanuel Kant <laughs> just got onto Twitter. He's not very um, active on Twitter, but he he's not very active. It was it was the very first. It's at Kinky Kantian, uh, but Immanuel Kant's name. A very bad wizards take a drink every time David systematically outwits and dismantles Tamler's reasoning at every stage of the episode. And I uh, just, when I saw it, I was like, oh man, that's, how could, I'm glad we have listeners that just get it. And then Especially. I realized it's like a joke account. And then I was like, well, you could be right by mistake. You know, this is sort of some, some gettier version of somebody being insightful. So, so this uh, is at Emmanuel Kant. He, he has one tweet, right? right? This is no, his. It's, uh, it's at Kinky Kantian. Oh, but, at but, Kinky Kantian. Okay. Yes. This yes, is his one, kid, tweet. But one tweet. This is his Everybody, categorical tweet. Let's get Kinky Kantian as many followers <laughs> as possible. Yeah. At Kinky Kantian. We'll post the link. <laughs> Yeah, if you're kinky Kantian, you're in the well. No, you're not in the running actually for for the win. <laughs> but it's a very funny, very funny idea. Here's one of my favorites. We're gonna open this up until we record yeah. next episode. So you have till then to send in yours. Um, someone named Creighton Teal emailed us and says, "When anyone mentions intuition, take a drink." That was the original idea right. uh, from Mark, which Erickson. is still in the running for me. Yeah. Um, it's just that some of these get more elaborate. When D- mm-hmm. Tamler refers to Dave as a Kantian, finish your drink. This one should come with a warning about alcohol poisoning, he says, which is true. <laughs> when someone mentions balls, farts, or any double entendre, take a drink. When someone mentions drinking or smoking marijuana, take a drink. When Tamler refers to his damn dog barking, finish your drink. And when Dave laughs like a stoner while Tamler is making a statement, take a drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There are a lot of peas giggling ones that that will really be alcohol poisoning. Um, I don't. I really try every time. I say I'm not going to laugh this much. My other favorite, and I think yours too, was Vlad Chiduk, friend friend of ours. Um, he also mentions when content is used pejoratively, when peas giggles. Again, two things that will lead to to just bad bad livers. But three, when at Tamler feels misrepresented, which <laughs> which is which is could, really just uh, that that's a great one. Because I do feel misrepresented. And I love that it is not when Tamler is misrepresented. It's it's really an appeal to the subjective criteria here, which is, that's the one that would be the drinking. Well, as I think you might have said on the last episode, like at some point I have to wonder if I'm just not expressing myself clearly. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. But I'm not at that point yet. I'm still at the point of what the fuck is wrong with everybody? some point on your deathbed, you'd be like, oh, shit, no wonder. So, yeah, we, we think this will be a, a fun drinking game, except for, for those of you who listen during your commute. Yeah, rec- use this game res- responsibly, yeah, always. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you will have to not blame yourself if you hit a little child. All right, um, let's not ha- rehash these things. We do want to point to, there's actually a way for you to find out exactly what we meant and where we stand uh, a lot better than we've been able to express, I think. And that is by going to Billy Pritchett's blog. He did a write-up of the Sam Harris debate that we had that was phenomenally good. I mean, he turned what we said into, like, actual meaningful words. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I, I think I posted it on Facebook. I said we couldn't have done it better ourselves and and like we really couldn't like if we had tried to just write it out 
that way. Yeah. I don't think yeah. we, I mean, we, there were times when I thought to myself, well, no, I, I meant slightly something different, but, but it, it was overwhelmingly that right. it was just better said. But yeah. And also just like adding a lot of relevant sort of historical background to it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing piece. I have, I strongly recommend you. I think we tweeted it out. We put it on our Facebook page, go to Billy Pritchett's blog and we'll post yeah. a link to it on our uh, website for this episode. Um, yeah. Any other drinking game? Uh, uh, well, Vlad's, like? Vlad Chidek's last uh, last suggestion, which was the bonus round, everybody does a whip it when the podcast goes over an hour. Um, <laughs> yeah. I believe that would at least be a whip it for every episode except for one, <laughs> <laughs> except for the snitching, stop snitching one. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to talk about your Hegelian insights? No, because I still haven't done whip it. You remember next conference. Uh, that's so right. that's that's one of them, right? Oh no, yeah. this is one for another one from Jacob Malley, who who's, who's doing his thesis on this topic. I think, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Whenever either of us, he has ones for each of us. Like I guess he imagines this being two teams, which I like. Uh, <laughs> this is very long, so you got to go to the Facebook page for this. But when talks about the positive of drugs, each player has to sing a. A drug-related song or drink. He always gives you another option besides drinking in this one. A couple about you are calls someone a great, wonderful, best person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone on Team Tamler has to do a shot. I mean, that would that would just kill people. That, I don't want to be responsible for the deaths. Says some of his best friends are. Everyone on Team Tamler does a shot. This is when <laughs> you say these things. Yes. Calls Tamler a self-hating Jew. Uh, he also hit me up about bragging about uh, my music. Brags <laughs> about his music. Oh, I'm sorry. His quote beats. That is awesome. <laughs> you know what? Jacob, apology accepted. No more beats for you. <laughs> no more beats for you, Jacob Malley. See how you like it. Okay, so I think we're we're in the running. Um, we'll put up. We should put up one of those polls. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. we should do that. We don't have anything like that on the website. Yeah. Do we have anything else to talk about before getting to Susan Wolf? Nothing other than you know we're still getting. We just mentioned that blog post, but we're still getting a lot of tweets, emails about the Sam Harris discussion and then the follow-up discussion that you and I had. We're kind of chilling on discussion of free will and determinism and responsibility and all that stuff for now. But the plan is to have Sam Harris back because we think it would be nice to to have him and us respond to some of the things that that have been said. So within the next few weeks, months, we'll have Sam back to talk about that. Yeah, and to talk about, not to brag, but some cross-cultural research that undermines the idea that logically or rationally, it's so obvious that if you lack libertarian free will, you can't deserve blame or punishment for your actions. We'll move on. We'll take a break and we'll move on and talk about about Susan Wolf's book. But there is something similar in the discussion of of objectivity that yeah. that I think, you know, when we talk about life and meaning in life and value and what we value, this question will come up again. That is, what 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 are the criteria that we have to use to determine whether or not something can be said to be objectively true? It's playtime! I just love to get dirty!
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. So we're about to talk about Susan Wolf's book, The Meaning of Life, which I strongly recommend that people get and read. It actually is that I, you know, you can read this whole book in under two hours. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially two chapters that she wrote, uh, then chapters from other people that, that are a commentary. Yeah. yeah, commentaries. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, um, you can support us if you like what you hear. If you if you like the substantive conversations like the ones we've been having so far in this episode, or the beats, or the the music, sorry, the beats, (laughs) that's so great. I'm gonna treasure that. You can support us on. Our website by going to verybadwizards.com, clicking the support page, and then clicking on Amazon, shopping at Amazon. We get a small small cut of whatever you buy on Amazon. You don't get charged anything for that. Or you can support us directly via PayPal. And you can rate us and, on iTunes. Yeah, and what? thanks to all those who've been doing that. Uh, your PayPal donations, um, Amazon support. It's it's really really come through lately. And in fact, came through uh, a lot this past month. The PayPal donations pretty much covered the the extra costs associated with having an uh, completely unexpectedly heavily downloaded episode. Uh, so thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you guys. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate the support because we do. Although it sounds like we're fucking around a lot, we do work pretty hard on this as well. Yeah. We really appreciate all you tweeting us um, at peas at Tamler at Very Bad Wizards. Always check out Matt Welsh's Tumblr page and like us on Facebook. Rate us on iTunes. We've gotten some really nice iTunes reviews. Yeah, we really. have. Not e- we haven't even had a repugnant in a while. I know. <laughs> we're due for a repugnant. Or maybe we're just not repugnant enough anymore. We, we need we, to be more repugnant. Getting soft. <laughs> I like their early stuff. I liked them back when they were repugnant. <laughs> Another thing that, that we got an email about was a, a request for the unedited version of an episode. And I had to explain very, hopefully very patiently that nobody also nobody wants the unedited versions of these episodes uh tamla actually puts in i don't know a good eight hours or something uh into editing each of these episodes and i swear to god it makes them it makes them what they are there's no and in particular say for instance in sam harris case i think we had four hours of unedited audio and we got it down to two and a half hours and that's just for a lot of reasons i mean sometimes we just fuck up sometimes we actually realize that the discussion we had was redundant or boring and even though it might not be noticeable there's still a lot of ums and ahs that probably right. don't make it to your ear um a lot of otherwise. ums and ahs <laughs> I, i'm an ah yeah i ah uh, so the final product really is the best of all you, possible worlds it sounds rambly but it's nothing like what it would be all right so let's get to something substantive um before we lose all of these treasured listeners and supporters that we have. We're, we're talking about Susan Wolf's fantastic book, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. I interviewed her, not bragging here. I, I'm not bragging, I'm just reporting. Not, not on purpose. That I, that I interviewed Susan Wolf for the second edition of A Very Bad Wizard, the book. And, and we'll play some of the excerpts of the interview throughout this discussion. Um, and Dave and I will talk about them. Um, but um, this is a book about 
the title is Meaning in Life and Why It Matters, and that's exactly what she discusses. First of all, what is this thing that we call meaning in life? What is that? I don't want to say what, what does that mean, but what, what constitutes <laughs> yeah. a meaningful activity or a meaningful or a meaningful life? Um, we use that terminology a lot, but we don't. We haven't exactly pinned down what it means, and then, and then second, how thinking about why meaning in life matters can you know what that does for us practically speaking why that matters so um you just read the book tell me your sort of idea of what she's trying to get at i'd been a susan wolf fan as well from her from her moral saints article that we've discussed and on this podcast uh and i gotta say when i when you first pitched this book on our last episode as something uh to recommend to our listeners, uh, I was laughing to myself because that's what I always hear you philosophers complain about when you, you know you get on a plane and somebody says, "What do you do?" You're like, "Well, I do philosophy." And they're like, "Oh, so what's the meaning of life?" Um, yeah. And I think it's that's it's right. sort of like the the version that I get, which is like, "Oh, are you analyzing me?" And I'm like, "I or uh, first of all, I don't do analysis, but second of all, I don't give a fuck about you, man. Buy me a drink. Are you paying? <laughs> I'm just bitter." <laughs> It's so bitter. It's so bitter. I've just been on like 18 pins. Um, it's like uh, I'm sitting next to Aaron Rodgers. Oh, how come you're not throwing me a football? <laughs> so I was looking forward to this because I know she's a good writer. As I was reading, the other thing that struck me before I get into the meat and potatoes of it is that this is a lot of conceptual analysis of the sort that you're always dissing, uh, which kind of made me happy. Um, but we'll get into the reasons why. It, this is it good is. conceptual analysis. It, I good never good thought I would say right? that. I guess because... A, she doesn't try to get too systematic about it, and B, that she she really pays attention to why this actually matters to our life. So right, and it yeah. seems as if it does matter. I mean, people do say all the time that I want my life to have meaning, right? And they yeah. don't, in a way that they don't say, I, "I'm curious about whether knowledge is justified." Truly, you know, uh, right. people talk about this. Exactly. <laughs> they <laughs> they want exactly right. And they and they come up with criteria for what it means to have a meaningful life. Like they on their own, they say, "Well, my life was meaningless until I did this, or until you know." Mm-hmm. I, I, and so, so in that sense, it's worthy of discussion. Apparently, and I don't know, and maybe you or some of our listeners would know if um, she's right when she says that it's been pretty ignored. I mean, I think I read Nagel. Nagel wrote a, a, an essay on the meaning of life, but we should distinguish between two questions meaning the meaning of life this book is certainly not going to tell you what the meaning no. of life is in right. and i think the way that um so so nagel's essay the absurd is addressing something very specific which we may get to uh by camus who is talking about whether life ultimately has meaning this book really isn't about whether life ultimately has meaning it's about just all the times that like we distinguish these two categories of activities and, and lives meaningful lives meaningful activities uh, meaningless activities like wh- what are we doing when we like how do we distinguish between those two things and i think that that it's important to say that from the get-go wolf says you know when people talk about psych- psychologists do this a lot when you say well, why do people do things they say well they do it out of self-interest so that actually turns out to be the answer for a lot of people if you ask them like what what would your ideal life be it would be a life in which i were happy 
And for them, happiness often means just you know doing the things that I want to do. That gives um, them the most pleasure. That gives them the most pleasure, right? And then there have been people who say like, well, it's absurd. And this is often the fight that I would get in with with people who who claim to be psychological hedonists. Say, no, sometimes we do things because it's right. In fact, we violate our own self-interest all the time in order to do something that is morally good. And so you might have now, you might have, now you could see this sort of classic battle between self-interest and morally good stuff that happens all the time. They don't always clash, but sometimes they do. And that's sort of the story of the psyche. At what points should you be allowed to, to have your self-interest trump the morally right thing? Susan Wolf, I think, in her essay, Moral Saints, early on pointed out, look, you can't. There are things that morality requires us to do that if we really, really just spent our whole lives doing it, it would suck. Like, it would just be shitty. Like, if you really take it to the extent that it seems to require, whether you're a deontologist or a consequentialist, you're not allowed to do all the sorts of stuff that we think makes life worth living. Right. And these aren't just things that make us directly happy. They're things that might actually be tough like learning a new skill can be really really annoying like and and in fact um hard and cause a lot of pain what she wants to say is like what what people are ignoring here is this third source of value the things that we do um because they bring meaning to our lives so i think that's where she sets the stage yeah she tries to add this third dimension right now we have in our self-interest or the moral thing to do but then there's this third dimension which overlaps both of those categories, which is just meaningful or not meaningful. Right. And so she says some, yeah. she gives some examples. Um, acting out of love for her doesn't fit into the category of egoistic action or just morally good action. She says, when I visit my brother in the hospital or help my friend move or stay up all night sewing my daughter a Halloween costume, I act neither for egoistic reasons nor for moral ones. Right, staying up all night sewing your daughter a Halloween costume. You know, you could be you could be you're feeding the homeless, but also you could be sleeping or watching a movie or whatever. Right. right? It doesn't seem as if these are just the actions of a crazy person, right? But in fact, they seem to be actions that people deeply value, uh, just not for those two reasons. Um, right, and it's just trying to figure out what those things are. You know, uh, those things that are neither necessarily in your self-interest, although they can be, and not necessarily moral, although they can be, but meaningful. That's something that she's absolutely right. Philosophers have not spent a lot of time thinking about. It's just too, in some ways, it's too big a question, but in other ways, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's a, I, I don't know what the sociology behind why this hasn't been a subject that's been explored uh, in more detail. Right. And maybe it's because of this of wanting to avoid something that's messy because she has from the get go, she says, look, of course, people use it in all kinds of ways. She says, I don't wish to insist the terms always used in this way or that what I have to offer is an analysis of meaningfulness can be substituted for that term in every context. So she's saying, look, there is just this class of things, though, and and I have no at this point I have no objection other than than you know some gnarly decision to systematize everything because I get it. I mean, I know when somebody says my life has to have meaning, it makes sense to me. It it's not it might not be well fleshed out, but it's not as if when somebody says my life just hasn't had meaning, I'm not like perplexed. But we can still benefit, and here's this was 
an epiphany for me about conceptual analysis, we can still benefit from trying to reflect and narrow down more precisely, if not all Was that an with- epiphany that like just that you just had right now? Because I really wish you would have had it like an episode like twelve or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, just reflecting on the, the you know what we're talking about when we say this can actually be important for us. I asked her whether I whether she thinks philosophers put too much emphasis on theories, and it was sort of a leading question. I was. Just getting ready for her to just say, well, yeah, of course, obviously, you know. And then she didn't. She defended theorizing in a way that's totally consistent with her views. What I really want to say isn't so much that they place too much emphasis on thinking about moral theory. And it's that they need to step back from the assumption or confidence that there will be a correct moral theory. Uh, I actually think the activity or the exercise of, you know, trying to figure out what, what is a good moral theory, what is, you know, is there a right moral theory, Let, let's try to do the best we can inside of moral theory. That's an excellent way of thinking hard about ethics, uh-huh. right? But, but the idea that, and there's, you know, I've got to, I'm going to come up with an answer, that seems to me, Highly unlikely, you know, and that, and that the push, the desire, I mean, we have this desire, as I say, it's a philosophical temperament. We like systems. We like answers. I mean, many people, not just philosophers, but I think we have a hard, we have a hard time yeah. living with, you know, there's nothing more to say. You just gotta, you know, use judgment and stuff like that. I'm not even against having that temperament, but, but truth, <laughs> you know, I think it, it tends to make us push our views just, you know, against what evidence and wisdom would otherwise. Let me see if I get this, because on the one hand, it sounds a little weird to say, I, I, I think we should work on theories. We just should never think that there's a theory out there that's, that's going to give, give us everything or capture it. But on the other hand, I get it because I love film. I love movies. I'm, I'm a huge fan so if I tried to come up with a theory of what makes a great film, and I know from the outset that I'll never come up with a theory that it's just guaranteed to tell me whether a film is great or not, but it would make me think harder about the different aspects of what I like about filmmaking and push me to sort of question certain assumptions that I have. And so it's sort of as a practical way, it helps me delve deeper. Is that the idea? Uh, good question. Is that the idea? I don't, I mean, in the case of art, it seems a more deep feature that there's, that you'll never get a theory that will tell you what. Seems obvious, yeah. Well, not to everyone, but it, right, but it does seem obvious to me too. Um, in the case of ethics, I don't think it's as obvious. Why? Yeah, but but maybe, maybe it is the same. It's the same idea in thinking. I actually do think it's a good exercise. It's a good way to think hard about ethics. I mean, what I mainly want to say here, and this is, and this is, I don't see the relation to aesthetics here, is that, look, you might think if you're not, a, if you don't believe there's a moral theory out there, then you might as well just go on your moral intuitions, right? something like that. Right. Um, and just say there is no, you know, this reasoning stuff is just, you know, our, it's just 
we're just playing games, rationalizing what you might think. Look, there isn't a reason. Really, doesn't give have anything to do with ethics, and it's and therefore it's philosophers playing games to try to make themselves not yeah. as philosophers, but as people think. You know, we're not just our psychology. I don't believe in that. I do think reason has a lot to say about ethics. I don't mean pure reason. I just mean reflecting as a, you know, responsible, intellectual and perceptive human being will give you better conclusions about ethics than, you know, than just taking your intuitions. Uh, so I do think there are ethical truths and that, and that you, you know, get better as you think harder. So in that respect, I think theory is just kind of an extreme uh, and, and rather particular way of thinking what that truth is going to look like, which I think is probably yeah. false. But So I guess what I want to, part of why I was saying, as an activity or an exercise of moral reflection, looking for moral theories, seeing what's right and wrong about them and how far you can get, is very useful in, in giving us insights. Um, what turns out not to be, at least anything I've seen yet, successful is saying is finding a theory that gives us the truth about ethics. I totally get what you're saying because I feel like it has its downside too, and yeah. the downside is these game, the game of theory counterexample, refinement of theory, new hypothetical counterexample that does, I think, distract and not inform. We approach real life moral problems. Well, it depends. Um, uh, actually, I, even there, I would say it depends on you know what kind of counterexamples are we talking about, and what are we doing with the counterexamples? I mean, there are there's phraleology, right? Um, or you know, similarly, you know, arcane or you know, science fictional examples that that really seem to have left real life behind. Yeah. But there are also counterexamples. I mean, Bernard Williams talking about, you know, George and the Chemical Biological Warfare right, Factory. Right. That, yeah, that... Yeah, no, you're right. That's a great example. But that's a counterexample aimed at, I don't know, sort of establishing the, the problem with right, exactly. theori theoretical so it's not, approaches It's not as general, it for its yeah. own sake. Or, yeah. Right. So the idea is that... <laughs> Theorizing isn't the problem because it can. It's a good exercise as a way of making you reflect about the topic. It's the problem is the optimism that you will come up with a systematic theory. That's what she thinks is the problem, not the exercise of theorizing itself, which is really interesting. I think. Yeah, no, it's it's, and I think that it is. It'll help understand why she ends the book the way that she does. And she sets the stage for saying, look, like if, if what you're expecting at the end of this book is like this awesome theory um, that captures everything, then just you'll be disappointed. Um, just like you'll be disappointed if you're expecting that from us and ever. <laughs> Luckily, we lower. We do a really good job of lowering expectations. Um, so let's talk about what, you know, to the extent that you can call it a theory, what her theory of meaning is. It has two broad criteria. Yeah, no, and, and their criteria that she, uh, I take it, is bringing together in, a, in an original way, but at least the first one is something that people talk about all the time. Um, and that is that there is some fit between what you desire to do and what you get to do, right? 
Yeah, that you feel fulfilled. She calls the view the fitting fulfillment view, and this is the fulfilling part of it. It's just like it feels good to be, or it feels right for you to be doing this activity. You you feel like it. I mean, in some ways, the best way to describe it is you feel like what you're doing is meaningful. The person subjectively feels that way, and the far end, it's like they feel full. It's total fulfillment it's like flow but it can also just be this is tough like writing this is tough this is brutal this is boring this is frustrating but ultimately i do think it has meaning that would also fit the criteria so so pursuing your passion right just just leaving it at that like doing what you love to be doing um, some people actually just this is their lay sense of it what it would take for a life to be meaningful pursue your passion and that will give you a meaningful life. So, so long as you really love something and you get to do it, that's a meaningful life. She's suspicious. She thinks that if, if that's the only criteria, then what's going to happen is that you're going to make the error of including too many lives uh, or too many activities or whatever into the meaningful bin that probably shouldn't have been in there. Right. So this is where the second criterion comes in. So it's not like she thinks the subjectivity criterion isn't necessary, but she just doesn't think it's sufficient. What she adds to that is that not just that you feel that the activity that you're doing is meaningful, but that it actually is meaningful. The the, the feeling that you get is the appropriate feeling from um, an objective point of view. And this is the more controversial criteria. And it's what the commentary, the, the, the great commentaries of these uh, challenge are pr- mostly on that criteria. I think it'd be useful here um, to talk about some of the examples that she uses to pull the intuition that the subjective criteria that have just just fulfilling your passions isn't quite enough. The first one that she uses, imagine a person is just devotes their life to their goldfish. They have a goldfish. They love feeding and caring for this goldfish. They give it like an awesome little bowl and they talk to it and they, unlike me, they feed it at the right times. They don't overfeed it. They talk to everybody about how awesome their goldfish is. And so so by design, this, uh, this, this example is giving us a case of which somebody is passionate about some, something and they get to do it. It's fulfilled passion. That meets that criteria that a lot of people propose ought to be the only criteria, that subjective criteria. She says, well, no, I, that is not a meaningful life, right? The um, person thinks it's meaningful, but they're wrong. But they're wrong, right? Because that's not an actual meaningful activity. It's not a meaningful, you know, within the context of a life where that's pretty much all you care about. So she says this, this is not enough. What we want is some – we want to be able to say somehow objectively um, that the activities that you're engaging in are actually meaningful. This is this is the weird part of the theory. It's not like she tells us what is enough right. other than it has objective value. The thing that you're doing has objective value. And we'll talk about what she means by that, the soft objectivity that she brings up. Now, 
the Sisyphus example might be a good, this might be a yeah. good place to to bring it up because well, well yeah. so just to lead into that so Nomi Arpoli in her commentary sort of objects to this to her use of examples in an interesting way we all have the let's just say we all agree with Wolf. So we have that, we share that intuition with, uh, that, that this is a woman that feels fulfilled, but that isn't doing something of value. Nomi says that I have a hypothesis about this person. <laughs> she doesn't exist. Right. And that, so in other words, the reason that we have that intuition is that this isn't like a real life person. Uh, and if there was a real life person like this, they would be far more complex and we might rethink our intuition that their life lacked meaning. But the fact that human beings are what they are, we recognize that that's not, you know, like, so, so it could go either way. Our intuition could be deriving from the, uh, the fact that this person is unrealistic as an actual person, or it could be deriving from what Wolf wants it to derive, which is that's not a meaningful activity. Now, I press her on a different um, example, which is the Sisyphus example, and we'll play that excerpt right now. So here's the one I want to ask you about. Okay. The Sisyphus fulfilled. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. You, this is an example from Taylor. Somebody yes. injects Sisyphus with a drug. He's been pushing up this boulder up right. up this hill, and it's just sort of miserable and boring. And then someone injects him with with a drug, and all with of a, a sudden he finds it. loving. Yeah. Right. Yes. He finds it just to be the most thrilling and exciting and fulfilling and uh, yeah. experience of right. his life. Right. And your point is just the fact that he feels that way about it, just the fact that he's now fulfilled by it, isn't enough to say that he, he's engaged in a meaningful activity. Right. Right. Now, so or that I, his life is right that he's living a, a meaningful, extremely life. meaningful life. Right. Yeah. So, so here's so here's my the the challenge I would want to raise to that. I agree with that intuition, but I think the intuition comes from the fact that he was injected with a drug uh -huh. so that it's not Sisyphus anymore, but it's like a lobotomized Sisyphus. Yes. Or it's like, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson at the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So the intuition drives from the fact that it's not that it's not meaningful, it's not him anymore. And oh. the real him wouldn't f be fulfilled in that activity. But just to press that point, imagine if Sisyphus... Sort of along the lines of how Camus portrays him. Just at some point says, okay, look, this is my life right now. I am going to try to make the very most out of this. That I can just be constantly aware of how that boulder feels as I push it up. I want to be aware of every aspect of that mountain. And then as it goes down and I can take a break, I want to enjoy that feeling and look all around. Me <coughs> and what, so given that this is my world right now, I'm going to make the most of it. And he's able to make that work for him. Right. Now totally. I no longer have the, the intuition that it's a meaningless activity. Right. Anymore. You're totally yeah. right. I agree completely. So that's, I don't take that uh, as a challenge. I think that is the truth. So then how, <laughs> but then, well, I see it as a challenge because it shows that. It's not the activity. It's how you relate to the activity. It's how you relate to the activity, which could be more captured by the subjective criterion than an objective criterion. Oh, no, I don't think... Okay, so that's where... Right, we have to work this out. Right. As an aside, there is this wonderful article by Joel Feinberg called Freedom and Fulfillment, in which he talks about 
a variation of Sisyphus who, do, you know, um, you know, juggles the boulders, does these, I mean, each, each yeah. time, I mean, he, he, he can't keep it up at the top or something, but he, but he finds ways to make it a challenge. He creates challenges for right. himself in connection with it. And it, it's a variation on the kind of thing you're thinking about. Yeah. It's like what an only child does. Um, yeah, right. Yes. Right. If, if all goes well, yeah. right. Yes. If he's raised properly. Right. Yeah. So I think, right. Uh, it's a great example and a great variation. And now the issue is, so what, what have we discovered? I suggested, and you agreed, it's not, it's not the activity itself, but the way you relate to the activity. But you interpreted that to mean, so it could be subjective after all. It's not objective. And I think, no. He's found fulfillment. But he's he's found fulfillment by doing something worthwhile, which is, uh, you know, facing his fate and and responding in an, intelligible and to capture what Camus was thinking of a kind of courageous way. He was, right. you know, um, so it was an exercise of some kind of intellectual or human virtue that is in his approach. I mean, here is this guy who's fated to do these horrible things and yet he finds a way to make it not a waste of that, so that's so what that's I would say. where the objective value comes in. It's in the well way, in this case. So in diff- this case, so right. that's the thing. Objective value is such a broad category, and it includes products. You know, like he created a beautiful temple, right? Or it create, you know, or just the realization of virtue, or you know, of a deep achievement of wisdom. I mean, so we could take. As, a, as another example of how someone might feel fulfilled, but not at some point, I talk about people who are in some way deluded or, mis, you know, just deeply mistaken about right. the objective nature of what they're doing. Right. So somebody who's in a cult and who thinks they're dealing with a, um, you know, a supreme uh, leader and devotes their lives to these to the leader and but in fact it's a it's a scam artist right and, and right so this is so a person might feel if she never learns the truth if she's never disillusioned she might throughout think this is a really meaningful way to spend my time to make you know make him more powerful to protect him from his enemies to do all this stuff but it's but in fact what she's doing is not creating value at all. So now you might think it's not totally meaningless. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about, about how to deal with that case. But insofar as you think way less, uh, it's certainly not a paradigm of a meaningful life to be in that situation. And that's another case in which, so there is intellectual activity going on. It's not, it's not like lobotomy. This is not a lobotomized person at all. It's just a deluded person. Right. Um, And in that case, I think also, it's just not right to say this is as meaningful as. So then, would, yeah. okay, I take it that's a big motivation for why you want to hold on to the objectivity criteria. You want to retain this notion that people can be mistaken about what they find to be meaningful. They they can be mistaken that we can even we have loved ones that are doing something that they find meaningful, and we still might think that actually we. 
we might have yes. legitimate reason right? we can to say want that, them to right? do something else. Right? And right. about ourselves. We can and worry about, about like, I know I love doing this, but is it really? So I guess I'm, I'm thinking the, to, to, to challenge that a little bit is that, again, I think you could capture that in the subjective fulfillment with just the fulfillment criteria in, in the following way. So my daughter, I, I've, I've raised her to watch great movies, you know, and I, and I, I did the think, same. Did <laughs> yeah. And all, and great TV shows, you know, but, but, you know, she also has friends, you know, she's been watching the Simpsons, she's watching South Park, but she has friends and they watch these Disney channel shows like Jesse and I'll come home sometimes and she'll be watching Jesse. This what seems to me to be just a horrifically bad show, but that she loves. And she always says that. I love this show, Daddy. Leave me alone. I like this show. I think it's great. Just because you don't like Good it doesn't mean. Yeah, right. Yes. Right. No, we phrased her to be I've a little too I've never heard of the show second. before, but sorry. So, yeah. No, no. She should stick up to me on that. I yes. can be a pain in the ass. And I, and I believe that she's not doing the most, that she's not doing the most meaningful thing that she could be doing. But that basis of my belief is that I know that she has it in her, that if she were just doing this or watching this instead of that, then she would be more fulfilled. She would ultimately find that more fulfilling. So it's sort of like uh, what we're doing when we're thinking that somebody's life isn't meaningful is not necessarily that it's not objectively valuable, but that they would, if they did a different activity, or um, find more fulfillment in that activity. If you describe it that way, it doesn't require that it be objectively meaningful. It's still tied to, only to the agent, but it's tied to your prediction about what the agent will find most fulfilling. So, right, so that would be a, uh, um, a challenge in the sense that you think, look, we have these intuitions about which lives are or which activities are more or less meaningful. My explanation is, some of the time, that it's because they're, they have less, more or less objective value. Let's, using objective in a soft sort of way. Um, and yours is, no, it's because, it re- you know, human nature or your daughter's nature in particular being what it is, they would actually have an even better psychological relationship to a different object. So I have a few things to say about that challenge. Number one is, empirically, I, I find it dubious. Right? What do you mean? That they would have a better, they would be even more fulfilled in a, in a psych, that is that there would be a psychologically better state of their qualitative experience if they did Something. this other thing. Well, um, sometimes that's true. No, so, right. that's right. Sometimes, yeah. and but that, that it would always be true in accord with your intuit, the intuitions of meaning. I no, find. no, because all I'm trying to explain is my feeling that somebody can be wrong about that this is actually a meaningful activity. I don't always have to be right about that. In the oh, same oh, way oh. that you don't always have to be right about right, it no, being but you objectively think, right. valuable. Okay, right? well, yeah. so I was, I was responding, I think, to the, the case. Like, your daughter likes Jesse. Right. She's watching Jesse. And you think, oh, you would, you, if you just tried... Faulty doubt. Yeah, you would like that even more. It would be a better experience for you. And if I were, con- and th- then it would follow from your challenge that if you were convinced that that was a false empirical belief, right. you would say, "No, go ahead, watch Jesse." That's- I- I- and I, so I doubt it. 
really. I see. That's number so that's right. that's right. number one. Number two, number two, we we could for the sake of you know philosophical analysis take the you know possibly unrealistic example of let's say in fact a person is as fulfilled doing this to us patently absurd activity as doing this other thing um, do we want to say then then it really is a meaningful thing right. to do and if you think you're hesitant about that is can you just say because I just can't accept the Example, or is it because no? Even if that were true, there's something missing from it, namely that it's spent doing this absurd thing. That's number two, and number three, which is actually a, probably the more important thing, is my view about meaningfulness. I take it that a, a good account of meaningfulness should answer not only our intuitions about which activities are meaningful, and it can only answer it to a degree. It can't answer right. it perfectly. It should also ideally make sense of why people might care about meaningfulness and I think care about it in a distinct way from the way they care about happiness. Right? That is. And so I offer an answer, which is because we care about connecting in some connecting to our world in a way that that would make us make our lives seem good to the from some point of view other than our own. We want, you know, whether it's God or our next door neighbor or an imaginary uh, viewer, we want to be able to be proud of ourselves. And the fact that, oh, I feel, you know, even more interested in this TV show than in that TV show doesn't give you any basis for feeling proud of yourself. Unless you think, this is a better show, I'm getting more out of it, right? right. And then we're back to objective value. Yeah, so that was, this is one of those great Susan Wolf things where I think I'm pretty confident that I have a fairly decisive objection. I, I think with the Sisyphus one, she sort of, she was more on board with my objection as a way of at least sort of as, as, as a challenge. But then when I bring up the Jesse thing, she just, in, in that Susan Wolf way, says, you know, would you really, you know, let's say you really did think that your daughter would be wouldn't be more fulfilled by watching something better than Jesse. Do you really still think that you would say that it was meaningful? And I had to kind of admit, well, no, but I think she's probably right. I would still insist that that's not a meaningful activity. So maybe I'm more committed to this idea of objectivity than I thought. Right. And I, I think here, maybe... And because I remember this tripping me up early on, I think um, non-philosophers aren't don't have the training in what the word objective can mean. Um, yeah. And and Wolf goes out of her way to say what she doesn't mean by objective. So, so she says, look, we have this subjective component that you have a passion and you do you do the thing that you have a passion of. That's not enough because you could be doing stupid shit and you're just wrong about what to have a passion of. And so she says, we want something objective. We want an activity that's objective. And so wh- what are the criteria for that? Well, she says, like, let's get clear what I don't mean by objective. I don't mean by objective something that exists independent of any human mind. Right, we're not talking about like some property of the universe that, like, if all human beings were to die, like it would still be there. Um, right, it has to do with our 
particular psychology. Um, and, and it's more than just a poll. Like a lot of people could be wrong. Like they could be deluded about, uh, the value of a certain activity. So she also resists this view that I think John Hyde ends up endorsing, which is like, we value the things that the group values or doing things for the group. And that's, that's intersubjective. Um, but, uh, she says, no, I don't mean that either. Like a cult could be like all doing this thing. And you could, with a passion, following whatever the the cult leader is making you buy Nikes and cut your balls off, um, that's just stupid and meaningless. Is that a real cult? Yeah, that was the the real cult. I forget the name of them, but it's, a it's such a bizarre pairing of buy <laughs> Nikes, <laughs> buy Nikes. I think it would shave your head. I'll definitely buy Nikes. Off. Like I have no problem with that off. part of <laughs> the cult. <laughs> You're such a half-ass cult member. Um, <laughs> So she says, nope, I do mean objective in a sense that people will realize some stuff is just not meaningful. And while you press her, well, what what do you mean by people? And in the book, she says, by living in a way that is partly occupied by and directed toward the preservation and promotion of creation of or creation of value that has as its source outside of oneself. So this is critical for her. It has to be outside of you. It can't just be something that you're doing for you. Um, that might lead to happiness, but not meaningfulness. One does something that can be understood, admired, or appreciated from others' point of view. Yeah, you read okay. that quote, but I think I it, I don't care if you read it twice because okay. this is what this this discussion is about, and you got to the heart of it. Because I agree that it's not just when we're talking about meaningfulness, it's not just about what I would find most personally fulfilling. I want, in addition for it, my activity to be valued by other people. Well, we want it to be the sort of thing that other people ought to value. Well, when you bring in the what they ought to value, and you mention at some point the impartial observer. Would appropriately value is probably a weaker and better thing to say. But, yeah, okay. so the, you say that by, by living in a way that is partly occupied and directed towards the preservation or promotion or criteria or creation of value that has its source outside of oneself, one does something that can be understood, admired, and appreciated from others' point of view, right. including the imaginary yes. point of view of an impartial, indifferent observer. Right. So I agree with everything that about that up to the impartial, indifferent observer, yeah, okay. which I think is what grounds the ought. Um, right. Exactly. And because I, 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 I was thinking, I mean, I was trying to think honestly when I read this. Yeah. Your books do a great, and your work just does a great job of making you introspect. Yeah, and good. I was thinking <laughs> that. I, 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 when I, you know, when I, if I'm writing a book or if I'm doing something, I mean, I actually, you know, this is. I, I don't want to write a paper that, you know, if I showed it to people I cared about, they would say, what are you doing? This is just playing word games or right. whatever. I want them to actually value it. And I want the people I care about, the people I respect, the people I admire. Yes. Uh, I want them to value it. Right. But I don't think I care at all about an impartial, indifferent observer. That that plays no role in in what I would consider, you know, if, if they, well, an impartial and different observer wouldn't find this meaningful. Who cares, right? Yeah. So good. I, that, you're probably, that, that was perhaps a misleading way of saying what I want to say, which is a couple things. One is when you talked about who you want the approval of, right. you talk about people you respect. Right. 
I guess I'm thinking people you respect, that you respect them is already saying they have what you take to be good perspectives on value, right? Right. Um, the kind of case I had in mind here is um, you might think, you might have contempt for everybody around you with respect to a particular thing. Like they don't understand my painting. But, and so it's not that you want their approval. You might even think the fact that they approve of it means nothing to me because they just approve of whatever, you know, the New York Times tells them to approve of or right. something, right? Um, what you want is that it be good, right? That's the way you would normally put it. And since right. there isn't anybody around, perhaps, I mean, if you're Van Gogh or whatever, right, right. who can tell you whether it's good, right? You have to go to the imaginary, you know. If there were somebody who had good taste, I want them to approve of it, right? So the impartial and indifferent is not so important. It's just a way of saying this is somebody you can respect, really. Right, I see. Um, so it's like and there might be no, and or... even if there's no one you respect, maybe there, are, maybe there's no one you respect. Maybe there are people you respect, but you still think they're mistaken about this, right? Okay, so so Tamler, were you convinced by this? Because I, I, the minute I read these words, I was like, these are the most anti-Tamler words you could imagine. I mean. In that fiasco that was like the hours and hours of recording about Rawls um, that we finally put together as a podcast, uh, talking about the veil of ignorance or whatever. If there's anything I got from that episode that I remember, it's that these are words, these are fighting words for you. Yeah, well, impartial point of view are, is fighting words for me. You know, it's weird. I don't know what you like. I'm interested to know what you think about it, because on the one hand, she seems to sort of want to step back away from certainly a kind of Rawlsian conception of the impartial point of view. I, I don't think she thinks that there is, you know, that, that I don't even, not even sure if it's helpful to think of, in her mind, that it's even helpful to think of a, a fully impartial observer or what that would possibly be. Right. Uh, right. I think what she wants, and I think she makes that clear in that excerpt, is a way that not just a person can be wrong, sort of what you were saying leading into this. Not just a person can be wrong, but an entire group can be wrong. And, of course, she gets to me with the Oxford, you know, philosophers. Yeah. Yeah, that like She was looking for an example where a whole community loves to do something and participates it, in it, but it's at least worth questioning whether what they're doing has objective worth. And, and, and I and I guess I think here, here's where I stand on this now. I get that. I think that the that I, that we have a sense that an entire community, if they were devoted to doing like you know buy Nike sneakers and and cut their balls off, if you know that they could be wrong, that that's meaningful, even if they all do it and they all respect each other for the. But at the same time, I think the idea of an impartial observer is not a helpful way of bringing that out, and I'm not sure what the best way of bringing that out is. The impartial observer has too many, too much Kantian drink baggage that. Uh, and Rawlsian baggage that right. comes with it. And, and I think it, it goes against the kind of soft objectivity that, I, that she's trying to capture yeah. with her view. I do. I'm with her in that I want to be able to say that people, people are drink, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid 
sometimes literally, that was a meaningless thing. It was a meaningless act. It was a meaningless uh, life. And, you know, whatever, whatever meaning comes from learning from us learning about it is is still just not worth it it's just completely meaningless and i want also to have uh, an some sort of objective criteria for what kinds of things activities would be um, considered objectively meaningful she gets somewhere by trying to when when she speaks of outside of oneself she makes almost some points an appeal to our social nature and to to us as a species getting getting sort of being cooperative and social and benefiting from this aspect of ourselves. But the question is, she even admits toward the end, look, I ha- I have not come up with a good positive account of what I mean here. All I know is that the other account that collapses into subjectivity is even more unsubjective. or even intersubjectivity. Even intersubjectivity is is it just leaves me as deeply unsatisfied as just not having me. Yeah. So here's my question to you, who's more attra- attracted to this idea of objective value just temperamentally than I am. Right? You say, and and I agree with this, that we want to be able to say that entire communities are wrong in thinking that their activity is meaningful. That's the goal, right? To make sense of that because we can pretend we don't believe that, but we do. Like if we look in our hearts, we – but can that be – can that belief we want to – we don't want to lose, can that still be a reflection of – ultimately a reflection of our view of what constitutes a meaningful life. So in other words, for for anybody listening who knows Blackburn, it could be this would be the sort of quasi-realist interpretation. In other words, when we say that that's not meaningful, on the one hand we don't we're, we're not just reporting that this is my belief. Uh, we have reasons for it, and we are talking about the activity in question, not just our perception of it. But on the other hand, ultimately what we're saying when we say, say that obviously reflects who we are and what we value as people. So we can retain the ability to say, no, you're wrong in believing that that's meaningful, while also admitting that ultimately this is just a reflection of our core set of values and beliefs and who we are as people. Well, so I think this is why Wolf avoids anything like a laundry list of what would be meaningful activities, because I think that she might want to hold on to the wide variability in in the sorts of activities um, and structures of lives that might give rise to this feeling of meaning that she is unaware of because she's not experienced the life of a, you know, somebody living Plains Indian in the 12th century or something. Right. Right. Maybe the claim here is something that sounds like what you're saying, which is as human beings, there are certain features of our psychology and of our social life that are, over and over again, when we see the kinds of people that we value and that we say in retrospect, that was a meaningful life, 
they are things like that they engage with the group that was larger than them. They engage in in doing something with society that that either has to do with maybe not with their immediate society, but with some some future society that they have in mind. Um, that it is achieving some of their psychological potential in this challenging way. Like they're they are engaging in activities that are not trivially easy for them or repetitive, but that they are actually creating something. And in this way, it seems to be that the source of objectivity here is whatever those common elements to, uh, you know, if we were to take a hundred exemplars from different times and histories of meaningful lives, it would boil down to people who kind of met these criteria. So you might be able to have somebody who sat in his room all alone working in a laboratory because he thought one day I will light, you know, show the whole world that electricity can, can light it up at night and everybody laughs at him. Right. We want to say that was meaningful. Right. I, at least or I Van Gogh. Her yeah. example is Van Gogh. Yeah. And that gives you a lot of flexibility and, and humility to say, you know what? I was totally wrong about that idiot who cut off his ear. Right. right? I thought he was com- living a completely meaning meaningless life. So in that sense, it's – she starts off saying this. I'm not, I'm not selling you wolf tickets. That's a joke that nobody's going to get. <laughs> Including me. There's an, old, there's an old saying that if you give a promise that you can't keep, it's like selling you wolf tickets. It comes from the little boy who cried wolf. I, I thought I was the older one, the, but maybe not. This is, no, this is just maybe a hip-hop thing you wouldn't understand. Beats. Um, yeah, quote, unquote. So in that sense, there is um, – she says from the beginning, don't think I'm going to have an answer as to – being able to distinguish meaningful from not meaningful at the end of this, because there will be activities that will be honestly perplexing to us. That guy who's holed up in his, in his garage right now. But what do you think about that? Like there is this thing of objective value, but I'm not going to tell you how I'm not going to even give you a clue how to identify it, or I'm not going to tell you that there's even a way of identifying it. I mean, I can point out some general features where we all agree that those kinds of things tend to be, be meaningful but like doesn't that lead you to believe that maybe you know objectivity might be the wrong word to use well, let's, say, let's so to use a very narrow example because this is what i was thinking about like a woman is holed up in her lab her whole life because she thinks she's going to solve the energy crisis right and so all she ha- you know she's just pouring over books and computers and lab equipment everybody's like thinks that the scientific community thinks she's crazy her her family thinks that she's wasting her life away now, she dies um, but leaves behind a body of work. Uh, turns out, in one case, that it was just alchemy and gibberish. I'd like to say, wow, that was a meaningless life. But if it turns out that that it, it did solve the world's energy crisis, I want to say it was a meaningful life. Right. Um, and this so, was like the risky – this is the, the – in one of the commentaries, they talk about the riskiness of it. What if his paintings really had sucked? Yeah. You know, there's, no, like, there's nothing like a confident artist who's horrible, you know, like right. they're like, man, I'm going to change the world. Like Muhammad Ali said, I'm going to rock the world, but he became one of the ba- greatest boxers of all time. Like, I wonder how many people have said, like, I'm going to rock the world. And then they get like right. punched. Like, <laughs> Well, that's the thing. For every Van Gogh, there's like a million people who just suck. 
but they point to these, you know, these people who weren't appreciated in their time as evidence that they're good. But that's the weird thing about it is, and this I think speaks in favor of her view, that sometimes you have to wait to see whether the stuff is actually good to know whether their life was meaningful. But so now are we talking about meaningfulness in the way that was sold to us? Because what does it mean if in order to obtain, a hundred years has to go by? Do we mean the same thing about meaningfulness in the life when we say like, wow, it turns out, you know? In the same way that like you need a long period of time to know whether the New Deal was... Uh, a good piece of policy like sometimes i think it, I, I think I, I think i'm pretty sure she would say it it totally depends on the case how long you need to evaluate on it and that will change from a case by case basis but sometimes you do need uh, a longer period of time to evaluate whether something's meaningful because precisely because you don't know whether a key feature that would make it meaningful is actually there or whether it's not there. Right. So actually what I think then if you're trying to use this as a to make some sort of pr- give prescriptive advice, here's what you would want. You would want the say the goldfish case. You would say what distinguishes between the person who's obsessed with the goldfish Um, and it has a meaningful life, and the one who doesn't is. Suppose that they think that some mutation in this goldfish's DNA that is going to unlock the secret to curing cancer. Um, They obsess over this goldfish, and and that's why they do it. And another person has uh, just thinks that the goldfish is is pretty and has a great personality and loves it like a kid. Just beautiful. Yeah, and I think that there you would say, well, look, because the criteria of uh, the objective criteria of of this two part theory of meaning, it will be years before we know. What I would say as a pre- as a prescriptive account is something that is like the fulfillment view, but it's the fulfillment view plus these other criteria of doing something that is outside of yourself thinking. You can think hypothetically. You might not think that there is such thing as an impartial observer, but you can imagine society later on really thinking like, wow, thank you for for that, right? Right, but that's the thing. But you still are thinking of society. So like maybe I would call my view if I had to come up with a label – the big picture intersubjective Yeah, but you could view, think of a, but, like, you, but I mean you could think of a society that will finally reap the rewards. A society of people who might fit the bill for these like impartial uh you know, intelligent group of people that you might not have around you because they don't understand what you're doing. But if nobody ever appreciated it, then I'm off then I'm jumping ship. That yeah, that's really that's yeah. fine. So then I, I think that there are two stages to evaluating whether a life was meaningful. And one one can be used as a prescriptive guide. You want to have the right sort of uh, the right sort of relationship toward your task. You want to believe that the task isn't just something that's giving you and only you the jollies. You want to think that it is engaging in, a, in something that's bigger than you. And so, but that other criteria may or may not be fulfilled within your life. Yeah, that leaves open the possibility that you might not know whether your life – you might die not knowing whether your life was meaningful. Right. Or you might die thinking that it was meaningless. Right. But it and, turning out. But it yeah. turns out to be meaningful, which I'm okay with. 
I'm okay. I'm okay with that too because I think that fits in with the big picture intersubjectivity. But the reason it turns out to be meaningful still traces to the fact that there is some group of people that are around after you're dead that appreciate what the people who were alive didn't appreciate. Yeah. And, and I think that it helps us with cases in which you meet the first criteria, the intersubjectivity, like everybody thinks of you as wonderful and great, and then you die and your art or your work is forgotten or surpassed within a year because it turns out you were wrong or it was like a way less efficient way of solving the problem. And now your life, I can say in retrospect, was far less meaningful than it appeared to have been. And here's the thing that, you know, when we start talking about the the you know these kinds of criterion it, it it like i i actually think i asked her this whether you know to what extent her and and, and someone like me or high even height who's probably more extreme than i am on this to, to what extent they're substantively far apart or to what extent it's like just two way different ways of describing the same phenomenon and i think that i i, I you know i still maintain that that I, I, I think it's the latter. I think uh, there might be practical differences in term and, and, and important differences in terms of well, if you if you describe it this way, it'll have this effect on your life. If you describe it that way, it'll have this effect on your life. And maybe Susan Wolf's way of describing it is better. You know, given all the caveats about the softness of her objectivity, it does seem maybe a little more natural to talk about things that way. It's just that we've been, that word has so much baggage for philosophers, you know? Yeah. Um, No, I'm I'm with you. I was even surprised that she was going to attempt it. But I I think it was, I mean, I recommend people read it. It's really, like, really short. Even if you don't read the commentaries, um, you can see whether or not. I would say read hers and for sure Nomi Arpley's um, commentary. Because Nomi thinks that you don't, that she can salvage this without the need for that. Yeah, as does height. As does Um, height. Yeah. Maybe we'll play other excerpts from my interview with her on 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 future episodes. Great. Because it's I, I I don't know it made me there's very few books that make me sort of question. I'm a stubborn guy, Israeli. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so maybe next time uh, this was your book pick, we could talk about uh, Logic Comics. Maybe there's something in there. Yeah, that we can all right. Disagree about. Yeah, okay. uh, the, the, I'll do that. The, the I like size it. of the noses or something. <laughs> <laughs> drink <laughs> All right, drink team later. team tamler or team david i forget which i forget how that works all right uh if you have a, we don't have a topic yet for next time i don't think i think we'll, uh, so if uh if you have any suggestions feel free to contact us on all the various outlets that are available to you thank you